being programmed to chill a show about business crime parapolitics and esoterica with your host jimmy fallon gong this is episode 42 imperial japan part 12 spikelopedia number four yoshiko kawashima part two the manchukuo joan of arc today i'm recording from the majestic hotel in shanghai in shanghai in the 1920s and 30s I have talked about the gambling halls and casinos, racetracks, brothels, and nightclubs. There was even a thriving jazz scene in town, with a number of nightclubs offering bangers such as the following. One of the many cabaret owners in Shanghai was Whitey Smith, who was also an ex-boxer, con artist, and jazz band leader for the Majestic Hotel Orchestra. His club entertained all sorts of people, like Chiang Kai-shek, 
Madam Jane, Pearl S. Buck, Jack Dempsey, and so many more. Pearl S. Buck said that Whitey had said that Whitey Smith had brought more goodwill to China than many an ambassador. He taught China how to dance. This is what I call soft power. The big hits were, of course, Singing in the Rain, Parade of the Wooden Soldiers, and The Doll Dance, and of course the Charleston. <laughs> Whitey Smith, who, in case you're curious, was white, actually even played at Chiang Kai-shek's wedding in 1927. When the two lovers left for their honeymoon, the band started to play A Love Nest for Two. Yoshiko Kawashima would have absolutely seen Whitey Smith perform because she moved to Shanghai after her divorce with Ganjurjob. Yoshiko mourns the passing of her marriage with an almost ironic detachment. She wrote, From the bottom of my heart, I feel jealous of those ordinary gentle housewives who see their husbands off in the morning and are eager to receive them home in the evening. So if I get just the right opportunity, I'll really make a complete return to being a woman. Unquote. She told that, of course, to the newspapers. Right. Now, we have a Japanese intelligence report from Shanghai in 1931. It wrote that problem daughter of Prince Su, Yoshiko Kawashima, is now staying here in a Chinese lodging, the Shanghua Hotel. She meets with various important people in the nationalist government and seems to be in the process of planning something. When night falls, she goes around to the dance halls and seems to be soaking in eroticism. At the same time, she puts on a show of saying that she's the Joan of Arc, that she's Joan of Arc, and is going to bring about a revival of the Qing dynasty. She is trying to meet with Hu Hanmin, who is at the center of the anti-Qing Kai-shek movement. Her activities have been carefully noted by those important Chinese people with a taste for the bazaar. She's the very incarnation of eroticism and the grotesque, and gives off such a strong taste of a whore that her mental stability has been questioned. On top of that, she seems to be in financial trouble and has a large unpaid bill at the hotel. Unquote. Which, like, damn, gonna cancel Japanese intelligence for being sex worker negative. Now, Yoshiko would not be in Shanghai forever. Events would quickly lead her back to Manchuria. Remember, this was in the period of time when factions in Japan were plotting to invade Manchuria and eventually China. One of the key architects of these plots, Lieutenant Colonel Kanji Ishiwara, said, Manchuria and Mongolia are not territories of China. They belong to the people of Manchuria and Mongolia. It is a publicly acknowledged fact that our national situation has reached an impasse, that there is no way of solving the food, population, and other important problems and that the only path left open to us is the development of Manchuria and Mongolia. Note again a recurring theme that many of the justifications the Japanese used among themselves for their colonialist ambitions was that Japan was not big enough, that there was simply not enough food, and so on and so on. Maybe if guys like Ryochi Sasakawa weren't constantly doing rice commodity speculation, they would have more food, right? Or perhaps if they implemented land reform? No, don't get me started. In 1931, the Kwantung army provoked the Manchurian incident, which we talked about before. This would eventually lead to the creation of Manchukuo. The goal with Manchukuo was a paradise, quote, a paradise of benevolent government. 
and a multi-ethnic state made up of the five Asian races. In case you're wondering, that's Mongol, Manchu, Chinese, Korean, and Japanese. In reality, of course, Manchukuo was just a massive theft of land for Japanese settlers. The Japanese stole something like 50 million acres of land by 1941. According to Phyllis Birnbaum, who is by no means a radical, the Japanese did this through, quote, price manipulations, coerced sales, and forced evictions, and upwards of 2 million ethnic Japanese would ultimately settle there. In order to evict the Chinese, that basically required a massive pacification program, which included things like strategic hamlets. Yes, strategic hamlets, just like in the Vietnam War. A Japanese official wrote that the program was, quote, forced through mercilessly, inhumanely, without emotion, as if driving a horse, unquote. Entirely related, Yoshiko Kawashima left for Manchuria shortly after the Manchurian incident occurred. This departure was reported by the SI Shimbun, saying, Miss Kawashima Yoshiko plunges into the turbulence, as well as the headline, Dressed as a man in a suit and cap, she goes to Manchuria, the land of her ancestors. Unquote. I wish I could do that transatlantic accent. Now, this is the period of time when Emperor Puyi was brought in, and therefore Yoshiko Kawashima was brought in too. Puyi's autobiography, take note, this was written in 1964, so keep that in mind. But Puyi's autobiography talks about this period and Puyi wrote that he had been deceived by the Japanese, and that he, quote, accidentally stuck his head into the tiger's mouth, unquote. Interestingly, the book From Emperor to Citizen started as his post-war confessions to his Chinese communist jailers. It went through several revisions, and it has been debated endlessly. But in the book as it stands, in every version, he comes across as a hedonist, which is almost certainly true. Puyi wrote, After I moved to Tianjin, there were many places to which money had to be sent every month, and a number of offices were set up for this purpose. There were also officials appointed to look after the imperial tombs of the Qing house. The biggest item on the budget was the money spent on trying to buy over or influence warlords. Purchases, excluding such items as cars or diamonds, probably accounted for two-thirds of an average month's expenses. I spent far more time on buying things when in Tianjin than I had done in Beijing, and the amount increased every month. I never tired of buying pianos, watches, clocks, radios, western clothes, leather shoes, and spectacles." Now, weirdly, he became certain that foreign goods were superior to Chinese products. He said, quote, a stick of spearmint chewing gum or bare aspirin would be enough to make me sigh at the utter doltishness of the Chinese, though I did not include myself as I saw myself superior to all my subjects. My body would be fragrant with the combined odors of Max Factor lotions, eau de cologne, and mothballs, and I would be accompanied by two or three Alsatian dogs and a strangely dressed wife and consort. Unquote. A different passage has him saying, Thus it was that both trembling with fear and dreaming of my future restoration, I shamelessly became a leading trader and the cover for a sanguinary regime, which turned a large part of my country 
into a colony and inflicted great sufferings on 30 million of my compatriots. Puyi's wife, Wan Rong, did not join him in Manchukuo, and the Japanese gave him Yoshiko as a mistress. And in many ways, Puyi was the first love of her life. Interestingly, though, Puyi was also widely rumored to be a homosexual, so it is not clear, you know, how successful that might have been. Yoshiko's brother, Xian Li, also dishes out the hot gossip here, too. He said, Puyi's homosexuality was an open secret. The empress wended her way to her husband, but I don't think you can say that she'd joyously rushed off to be with him. Unquote. Now, Yoshiko, perhaps because of the Perhaps because of Puyi's inclinations, Yoshiko was sent back to Beijing to bring Puyi's wife, Wan Rong, back to Manchuria. And apparently this was kind of a chore, actually, because the, the palace was attacked by Chinese mobs. And as the story goes, Yoshiko actually saved Wan Rong's pet dog when they were attacked. And in exchange, Wan Rong gave her a piece of jade jewelry. Now let's switch gears here for a minute. Let's talk about Ryukichi Tanaka for a little bit. We talked about him in episode 32. He was head of military intelligence, of Japanese military intelligence in China. He organized the Shanghai Incident in 1932, for example. Later on, during his war crimes tribunal, he was one of the most colorful defendants. He tended to shout every time he gave testimony. He was once quoted by a Japanese journalist as saying, To put it bluntly, you and I have basic differences in the way we view the Chinese. You seem to treat them like human beings. I think of them as pigs. Tanaka was, by all accounts, Yoshiko Kawashima's handler. And, like, this is not me speculating. He was also her lover. The first love of her life, in fact. If the reports are to be believed, she seduced him and that their affair started in Shanghai. They had a sexual and a professional relationship for a long time. Now, Program to Chill is sex positive. <laughs> but I usually don't get very graphic about sex, right? But in case you're truly curious, it seems like Yoshiko Kawashima was a dom, because we have an account from that author we mentioned before, Shofu Muramatsu, about their relationship. And I quote, Kawashima was imperious and rude to Tanaka, like a master to her servant. He just kept saying yes, yes, to whatever this female master told him. Separately, Muramatsu said, when it came to Yoshiko Kawashima, Tanaka had something big missing inside his head. What, what's that weeb shit? Sundere? Something like that. So, Shofu Muramatsu also wrote about an occasion when Yoshiko became infuriated at Tanaka for boasting in public about how he supported her, how she did nothing for the army, how without his money she would be out on the streets tomorrow. Shofu wrote, her voice was shocking. It was such a roar of anger that you had to wonder about what part of the woman's throat such a sound came from. Her face became as red as a peony. Yoshiko ordered Tanaka to apologize for insulting her, and he immediately obeyed. He got down on his knees and begged forgiveness. Shofu Muramatsu could only attribute this to Tanaka's, quote, well-known perversion, unquote. And, of course, the programmed chill stance is, hey man, live and let live, to each their own. My issues with the imperialism, not the well-known perversion, right? 
Now, if you'll recall, I mentioned last episode that it was Tanaka who ordered Shofu Muramatsu to write that novel about Yoshiko Kawashima. The importance of that might have been understated. Japanese military intelligence ordered a Japanese, a well-known Japanese author to write what would become a best-selling novel about Yoshiko Kawashima, precisely because she was a valuable figure for Japanese Manchurian relations. Like, this is remarkable. I mean, this happens all the time. This is kind of what I'm always talking about with novels as spycraft, right? But like, it's rarely so perfectly documented. Around the same time, another author, Hisako Morita, met the quote-unquote sister of Yoshiko Kawashima, who offered to sell her sister's life story rights. What she told me, quoting Morita here, was pretty much the same as what had been written about Yoshiko Kawashima in the newspapers and magazines, but she told the story well and with embellishments, so I was thoroughly drawn in. Only years later would Morita realize, after seeing a picture of Yoshiko Kawashima in a newspaper, that she was actually talking to Yoshiko herself, not her sister. She said, Was the person who had spoken to me so confidentially in fact Yoshiko? I believe that to this day. So Tanaka, by then a major, enrolled Yoshiko in a school to learn English and trained her further in espionage. He was quoted as saying, Her talents as a spy were extraordinary. After the war, during his war crimes trial, Tanaka would state that the Shanghai incident, which, to remind people, was the provocation that involved Japanese Zen Buddhist monks provoking Chinese riots, he would say that the incident was specifically a distraction from the maneuvers that led to the creation of Manchukuo. What's really crazy to me, however, is that Yoshiko Kawashima was actually involved in the Shanghai incident too. Tanaka gave Yoshiko Kawashima money. The money was to contract rowdy Chinese workers. She was to basically hire them and then have them being idle at a certain place at a certain time so that they could be there when the obnoxious Japanese Zen Buddhist monks would come in. They would cause a ruckus, the Chinese workers would react, and this is what kicked off the riots. Like, they literally planned a riot in order to distract the country from something more important happening. Let me repeat that. Japanese intelligence intentionally contrived a riot in order to distract the country from something more important going on. I sure would hate if that ever happened anywhere else in history. What's more, Kawashima was literally on the ground helping organize the whole thing. Yoshiko Kawashima, in a very real way, caused the direct deaths of several Zen Buddhist monks and Chinese citizens. And, of course, helped basically create Manchukuo. The next day, Yoshiko also commissioned some Japanese toughs to burn down a building. This, in conjunction with the other civil unrest, was enough to provoke the Japanese intervention and subsequent massacres, which some say reached upwards of 20,000 civilians, mostly Chinese killed. Tanaka said, quote, These deeds of hers would never appear in the newspapers, but were rather schemes carried out behind the scenes, unquote. He said that she was especially good at ferreting out information from the Chinese side during the conflict, especially during crucial moments 
where hour by hour it was critical to know what the enemy's plans would be. He gave one example that Yoshiko, on her own initiative, infiltrated a Chinese military installation and figured out exactly what armaments it contained, and then passed that information along to Tanaka. She was also in contact with Sun Fo, the son of Sun Yat-sen, spying on him for the Japanese military. Now, in assessing her skill as a spy, for some reason, Shofu Muramatsu did not think that she was very valuable as a spy. I don't know if this is like something he was told to say, if maybe he thought it would help her. That might come up, you know, later in this story. But he said that she tended to give the military what they wanted. Which, I mean, that can be true on a literal sense, but, you know, it's kind of how espionage works. All spies tend to just <laughs> deliver what the buyer wants to hear, right? But at the same time, also, Muramatsu might be on something in that she might have been more valuable as a public relations treasure. Now, according to Tanaka's son and biographer, which, man, imagine that conflict of interest. <laughs> this son and biographer of Tanaka wrote, wrote of Kawashima, quote, she became intoxicated by her success and fame. She always had the kind of personality that made her act on whatever came into her head, and that came into play here too. Her intolerable attitude became worse than before. Her relationship with, with Ryukichi Tanaka gradually became more distant. Putting the matter of their personal relationship aside, he warned her many times that she had built a record of many achievements, but if she continued this wild life of hers, she would throw away her future. She wouldn't listen to a word of this, and instead she abused him with her foul tongue." Unquote. Which is certainly too sympathetic to Tanaka, obviously, but it is probably not super unrealistic either. I mean, again, I don't know, right? But a different army intelligence officer wrote, From the start, she didn't love Tanaka. She just stayed with him for sex, to satisfy her curiosity and to take his money and so getting even slightly involved with her was a mistake. On the surface, Tanaka talked tough and seemed composed, but inside he was extremely timid and cautious, driven by jealousy and his strong sex drive. Unquote. Which I mean, like, get it girl or whatever, but like, these are both basically monsters, so I have no clue how to parse the back and forth on who's to blame, or who's in the right, or whatever nor is it that important to do so. Either way, at a certain point, Tanaka said to his colleagues, I have definitely broken with Kawashima. I will never see her again. That one's a devil, a she-devil, And then he arranged for her to be killed. Which sounds extremely excessive, right? But to be fair, she gave as good as she took because Yoshiko had been smearing him to Japanese military circles. She supposedly told a naval commander that Tanaka, who of course was an army officer, had constantly disparaged the Navy's performance during the Shanghai incident. Now, I probably haven't made this super clear, but the Japanese army and Navy had like major beef with each other. They were extremely dysfunctional. That was true in World War II, but certainly before. And what Yoshigo did could have literally gotten Tanaka killed or at least extremely inconvenienced, to put it mildly. And that, you know, that puts the whole 
him ordering to have her killed thing in context, right? They were both trying to kill each other. Now, because Yoshiko riled up the Japanese naval officers, uh, some navy men went to confront Tanaka with swords, shouting, give us your life. They were only assuaged by him writing out an oath, putting it in writing, saying, since the beginning of the recent situation, I have had only respect for the Navy's performance. <laughs> Which is extremely funny to me. There's there's really nothing funnier than, like, duels and, like, getting ready to murder someone over your honor. At least in situations like this. At the end of the day, Tanaka did not have her killed, and he arranged for her to become someone else's problem. At first, she was sent back to Puyi, but he did not want her either. So finally, they, and by they I mean the powers that be, seemed to have found a new operation for her. Now, the evening edition of the Asai Shimbun, February 22nd, 1933, featured the article. Damn, I wish I could do the transatlantic accent. The beauty in men's clothing, Kawashima Yoshiko, is back to be commander of the Vigilance Corps in Reihi. With heroism, she will lead the troops in the suppression of bandits. Like I said, I'm not an accent guy. Let me repeat that, just in case it wasn't clear enough. The beauty in men's clothing, Kawashima Yoshiko, is backed to be commander of a Vigilance Corps in Reihi. With heroism, she will lead the troops in the suppression of bandits. Damn, I wish I could do accents. The article explained, quote, at last, the time has come for her to ride out into public view. <laughs> oh, is that... Is, was she not in public view before? Quote, her responsibilities will be enormous. Of this, there is no doubt, since she will lead a large band of Chinese soldiers. Together, they will assist the suffering masses of Rei, who have cried under the warlord Tang Yulin's despotism. But at last, have emerged from the darkness of tyranny and begun to see the light of a new life. Unquote. The article also emphasized that Yoshiko took on a new name to signify her role as commander, Jin Bi, Bi or Radiant Jade. Now, the bandits that she was to fight were essentially Han Chinese, though very frequently also including ethnic Manchu and Mongols, all of whom were trying to fight to get their land back from Japanese settler colonialism. What's also interesting is that Rei, the region that Yoshiko's anti-bandit army was supposedly operating in, also happened to be one of the main regions producing opium. Yoshiko had found herself there because that's where her new lover and backer was operating, Major General Hayao Tada. Tada, of course, was the first love of her life. Tada also happened to be Japan's chief military advisor to Manchukuo. One Japanese observer wrote, he was her supervisor, her leader, her favorite uncle. In a letter to her brother, Yoshiko wrote, I confess that I made use of Tada. Please, I ask you to avert your eyes from our secret connection. She also later wrote, Tada adopted me. That makes it easier to snatch his money. Now, in time, Tada would plot to kill Yoshiko. Which, I mean, maybe I'm getting too much relationship advice from Steve Harvey or something, but like, if a boyfriend tries to kill you, nine times out of ten, it's the boyfriend's problem. But if two boyfriends plot to have you killed, maybe you are the problem, right? That's right, Steve Harvey's book, Act Like a Manchu Princess, Think Like a Japanese Spy. <laughs> 
What the Japanese Really Think About Love, Relationships, Intimacy, and Commitment by Steve Harvey. Damn, I wish I could do Steve Harvey voice too, but I'm not going to try. So, Yoshiko's other brother, Xian Jun, not Xian Li, who we have been getting a lot of gossip from. Her other brother said that Yoshiko frequently obtained money from Kenji Doihara. I know that these many names in this huge cast of characters can be tough, but Kenji Doihara came up in episodes 31 and 32. He was described as the Lawrence of Manchuria. He ran the drug trade for a time in Shanghai and elsewhere. As Yoshiko's brother wrote, quote, In those days you needed money to lead a flashy life. Yoshiko would go to Doihara and pester him for cash, and Doihara would give it to her. But no one knows what she did with that money. Even Doihara didn't know. She'd go there and pester him for half a year's worth of funds, and if he didn't give it to her, she would lash out at him or get violent or turn on her feminine wiles. Doihara was on to various secrets. If he gave her the money for half a year, she wouldn't come back. So Doihara gave her money from the special service agency, but after she gave, but after he gave her the money, he didn't know what he had paid her to do. Unquote. Let's talk about the Battle of Rei. The Battle of Rei occurred when when the Japanese army captured the Rei province from the Chinese warlord Zhang Chuliang. Again, please forgive me, proud nation of China, for butchering your language. The Japanese army captured and annexed this province for Manchukuo in 1933. This was in some ways the absolute nadir of Chinese military performance. One eyewitness to the Chinese defense of Rei named Edgar Snow, who wrote the book Red Star Over China, he wrote the following passage, which is a real scorcher. Perhaps not since the Crusades has a great army taken the field with so little intelligent preparation. Given 17 months in which to get ready for the invasion, the Chinese generals conducted their defense as if it were a surprise attack. Even Boy Scouts with some dynamite could have held off the attacking Japanese on Rei's numerous mountain passes, with snow and wind making them impregnable. But the disciplined and well-equipped Japanese army seized the region with ease. Rei was a debacle for the Chinese. Probably it ranks as one of the worst debacles in Chinese military history. Unquote. Now, it is not known whether Yoshiko Kawashima participated in the battle or not. It is possible that she did, but it is really, it's never been very clear what exactly she was doing during her bandit combat period. It's possible that she wasn't actually leading bandits at all, and I'm not trying to, like, you know, negate her accomplishments, quote unquote, but like, she gave a weirdly high number of interviews during the period when she was supposedly in the field. And it just doesn't really match with, you know. And then, like, there's really, she doesn't give a list of battles that she was involved with. You know, it's not really clear what she was doing. Now, in later stages of World War II, as Imperial Japan was losing the war, mind you, separate from the Yoshiko story here. The Japanese government just kept sending Japanese settlers to Manchuria. This was for a couple reasons, partially to maintain the illusion that the war was still going well. Then, because they lost the war, all these Japanese settlers caused a major humanitarian crisis. 
as none of the Japanese settlers wanted to stay in occupied Manchukuo, obviously if Japan could not support the puppet regime. It became total chaos there for a while, with like mass, you know, groups of Japanese fleeing. You know, I'm not saying that it was a bigger humanitarian crisis than the initial theft, right? But still, like, in a, in, still innocent people were getting hurt. But the interesting thing is that Imperial Japan keeping up the emigration policy till very late in the war wasn't just, like, about keeping up appearances. No, it's a lot darker than that, actually. Japan had a massive problem as they saw it, because very few farmers owned the land that they worked. This was leading to all kinds of problems, like increasingly destabilizing Japan-type problems. We're talking strikes, rice riots, economic inequality, and social unrest. I think we'll talk about it in future episodes, but there was actually a series of rice riots that literally could have caused a revolution. The solution that the Japanese government came up with was absolutely not land reform. Like, are you crazy? No, instead, they were planning massive depopulation through resettlement to Manchukuo. If you're thinking to yourself, damn, what was that quote by Cecil Rhodes? He said, the empire is a bread and butter question. Why, yes, that's right. The Japanese government, their plan for dealing with this was not land reform. It was massive depopulation of Japan through resettlement into Manchukuo. Yes, this is kind of like in the United States, like resettling excess populations into the West. In the UK, you know, it's like Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, etc. Japan's long-term plan was to send 5 million farmers to Manchukuo over 20 years. This would alleviate overpopulation and would act as like a pressure valve for Japan. That only works, though, if Japan wins World War II. But if you view their strategic goals as to depopulate a large chunk of Japan, then it doesn't really matter if Manchukuo stays, right? And if it looks like Manchukuo will fall, I mean, you still want to send those people over there. This is like dark real politic. What's worse is that the settlers, the Japan the would-be Japanese settlers, were recruited from areas in Japan hit hardest by the economic depression. That's who is being picked as settlers for Manchuria. Phyllis Birnbaum quotes the Japanese author Toriko Takarabe, who lived through this emigration to Manchukuo as a child. She wrote even though the Japanese government knew defeat was imminent, it kept sending people to Manchuria to make it look as if everything was still going well. Someone should take responsibility for what happened in Manchuria. Why weren't people at the highest levels of government punished for this? Unquote. Which, of course, is like begging the question, right? Now, I'm a big fan of Haruki Murakami, and in particular, his novel The Wind-Up Bird Chronicles has a whole subplot about the Kwantung army and the Manchukuo settlers. I remember when I first read it, when I was pretty young, and I was just like, I don't understand, why are the Japanese in Manchuria in the first place? And now that I'm older, I'm like, I still don't understand, why are the Japanese in Manchuria in the first place? Now, 
Years before the collapse of Manchukuo, Yoshiko Kawashima had written a personal essay, I Love My Homeland, which appeared in a Japanese women's magazine. In it, Yoshiko addressed the question of her overly inflated war record. She said, I led these troops and rode around to every corner of Rei, but compared with what I actually did, I got ten times the publicity. This was totally embarrassing. Unquote. Which even then is still probably overstating the case. It's not clear what she did, period. But Yoshiko continued speaking directly to the women of Japan. I speak to you intellectual women from the Japan I love. Manchukuo, bolstered by the strength of Japan's properly disciplined, deeply empathetic army, is gradually maturing into a fine country. Together with the people of Manchukuo, they are trying to develop Manchukuo's natural resources and build a paradise beyond what humankind has ever known. Unquote. Remember that. Yoshiko Kawashima said Manchukuo was being built into a paradise beyond what human beyond what humanity has ever known. Let's get an account from a Japanese settler from that time. And mind you, no, I'm not choosing to focus on Japanese settler voices. If I had an account by a Manchu or Mongolian or Chinese, I would certainly give it priority here. But that author I mentioned, Takarabe, she wrote an account of Manchukuo, which she saw firsthand. She saw these things. But this is a fictional work. Fertile Land, Land of the Dead, which includes a passage which I read. They passed by a horse-drawn cart whose driver was showing off what he had stuck on the end of his bamboo pole. Yuki looked at the driver's smiling face, which was covered with sand. At the end of the pole was a face with the mouth opened in the same way. That's the head of a bandit, Yamamoto Yoshiro told her casually. Yuki drew back in fear when she glanced up and saw that freshly severed heads caked with sand were also hanging in the electric poles. She did not shout out, but, firmly supported by the baby she carried on her back, she just half-closed her eyes. She had heard stories about the bandits, but didn't think things would be like this. The streets were full of freshly severed heads. Unquote. That is the true nature of Manchukuo. The streets were full of freshly severed heads. And, of course, the bandits were people seeking to regain their land. Such was the regime of the Manchukuo Joan of Arc. Now, in some ways, this is almost like a second episode on Manchukuo, because in the first episode, I actually didn't spend that much time talking about it. I think Manchukuo is incredibly interesting, but it was so bleak. It really is almost like... It's almost like the state the Nazis wanted to create in, like, the Pale of Settlement. Or, you know, like, the Balkans. Not the Balkans, like, the Baltics. And, like, Ukraine. Not to be too timely. Were Manchukuo to have succeeded, it would have been a massive theft of land from the Han Chinese, from the Manchu, and from the Mongolian. From the Manchus and the Mongolians. It caused a massive humanitarian crisis due to all of the Japanese settlers who were, in their own way, also victims of Imperial Japan. At every stage and in every way, Manchukuo was a crime against humanity. It was also a narco-state, right? 
Yoshiko Kawashima was, in her own way, just as culpable as the Japanese commanders she slept with. She helped create riots, she spied on the Chinese, she helped run the drug trade, and she put down bandits that were just dispossessed peasants. I'll just say it. This episode shows Yoshiko Kawashima to be what she really was. Next week, we will talk about her getting what she deserved. For resources today, I used Manchu Princess, Japanese Spy, the story of Yoshiko, the story of Kawashima Yoshiko, the cross-dressing spy who commanded her own army by Phyllis Birnbaum. To a lesser extent, I used Gold Warriors by the Seagraves, Confessions of a Yakuza by Junichi Saga, and several other books, I'm sure, that I forgot to mention. Thank you for listening, dear listeners. Check me out on Patreon, where I do one-off episodes. They're always really fun. You get your money's worth. Just $5 a month. Now I need to be on my way to the Hebei Model Prison in Beijing.